Let's pray. Father in heaven, even within the quietness of this moment, we can feel it. There is a war raging. A war for the hearts and the affections of every person here tonight. Some hearts have already surrendered to the enemy and they are prisoners of war. Some hearts stand at the edge of an endless second death, but they think twice. And even within this place, Father, there are ambassadors for your kingdom who think twice. Should I go? Father, our, prayer, our bold prayer for tonight is that the captives would be set free and that your people would rush and bring them home. In Christ's name, amen. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And the basic teaching of this verse is profound because it carries implications that touch every part of your life. It implies the way you live your life becomes an expression of the way you love Christ. The choices you make, the priorities you keep, the words you use, what you value, what you promote, what you stand up for, all of these elements speak with one voice and they express your level of love for Christ. And so practical obedience is the true test of love. Tonight, we'll read about a person who expressed love for Christ in an unforgettable way. But in doing that, controversy broke out and a scandal erupted. And this person became the target of ridicule and scorn. But then Jesus spoke and shocked everyone. Let's turn to John chapter 12, beginning with verse number one. In verse number one, the Bible says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Verse number one establishes the time and the place for this incredible story. First, we see the time in verse number one. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, Hostility against Christ has reached a fever pitch. The Jewish leaders have issued a seize on sight command and they are consumed with planning the killing of Christ. And their hatred is so intense. The Bible says in John chapter 11, verse 54, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews. In six days, Christ will be crucified and murdered on the cross. This is the final week of his life. Secondly, the place for this story is Bethany. Bethany was a small village that was located on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And this was a very scenic place that you could put on a postcard. The village of Bethany was dotted with lush palm trees everywhere you looked. And it was situated on a very mountainous terrain which would, which would create the feeling of quietness in seclusion 
from the very busy city of Jerusalem, which was located two miles to the west. And the road that connected these two places would take less than an hour to walk. And so Bethany geographically was close to Jerusalem, and yet it was a world away from the hustle and the bustle of life. If the village of Bethany were to have a welcome sign that would advertise its significance, it would maybe read something like this. Welcome to the village of Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom Christ raised from the dead. And because of this, Lazarus was most likely the most popular resident of this place. And because of what happened to him, Bethany was put on the map as being a very distinct and unique place. And it still is. We know the time We know the place, and now we see the setting in verse number two. The Bible says, there they made him a supper. We know from Matthew chapter 26, verse six, that Simon the leper opened up his house and hosted the supper. Now, Simon the leper is actually the ex-leper. He is a former leper, and it's possible that he facilitates this meal to show personal appreciation for his healing and to honor Jesus Christ. And so within the four walls of Simon's house, there is a warm atmosphere of joy and gratitude and love. But just two miles down the road, there is an active conspiracy to kill Christ. Now, what would it be like to be part of this Jewish supper? The word supper here actually indicates a formal meal. And this is the very definition of family time around the table. This was not fast food or a quick meal. The whole point here was to relax and recline and fellowship, but around food. This meal was marked by having long conversations where you would connect and open up and share and listen and just take in the camaraderie. So who was at this supper? And we actually do find a guest list in verse number two. The Bible says, and Martha served. Now this is no surprise. Martha is serving again. She is synonymous with the word service. And just like the greatest chefs in the world, she is at home in any kitchen, even if it happens to be Simon's. Martha is a doer. She volunteers, she puts her hand up, and she's willing to serve, and she's willing to labor in the shadows and be in the background, and she becomes the example of a servant heart who expresses love through selfless service. Martha doesn't strike me as someone who craved applause or recognition. She served because she loved. Can you imagine the stress that she had? The master of the universe is coming for supper. What would you make? You wouldn't order out, right? The 12 disciples are coming in for a meal. Can you imagine the pressure she went through? And yet, we see her composed, calm, and she shines like a star. Who else was at this supper? The Bible says in verse number two, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Now this is an incredible picture. If you can visualize this. We have Lazarus who used to be dead at the table. We have Simon who used to be a leper at the table. We have the creator of the universe sitting at the table. We have the 12 disciples scattered around the table. This is an incredible scene. 
Can you imagine the conversation and the mysteries that would be revealed here at the table? There is a unity that fills this house. There is warmth. There is friendship. There are connections being made. This is a beautiful picture, a very tender scene. But then, without warning, something happened that divided this house. That unity that we talked about, it breaks, it shatters into a thousand pieces, and this is what happens in verse number three. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. The Bible says that Mary took 12 ounces of ointment of spikenard. This was a fragrant oil that was produced from a rare herb called nard. And this herb was grown and exported from certain places in India. And based on its purity and that long delivery process, this was a valuable resource. The Bible says it was very costly. The parallel passages indicate that this oil or ointment was contained in an alabaster box. Alabaster is a translucent stone that is soft enough to be suitable for, car- for carving and shaping. And so if you can imagine, this oil would be in a flask with a long neck, then the top of it would be sealed with wax, and that would preserve it and protect it. And if you wanted to access this oil, you would need to break part of the alabaster box. The primary use of this oil was typically reserved for funerals. This oil would be applied to the body and that would minimize the stench of decaying flesh. Aside from that, it also could be used as a conventional perfume that people would wear and obviously it was a very luxurious item. Also, it could be used as an aromatic scent that would freshen up the house or sweeten up the atmosphere of a festival or a celebration. Maybe Mary is helping serve, but at some point her heart literally overflows with an urgent affection for Christ. And so she takes this expensive perfume, and she breaks part of the alabaster box, and with a determined heart, she pours that fragrant oil on his feet and on his head. And we know that from Matthew chapter 26, verse number 7. The conversation around the table stops, and the controversy begins. Maybe that perfume flows down from his head and the droplets become absorbed within the neckline of his garment. And maybe that perfume soaks over his feet and as it flows down, it pools to the floor around his heels. And maybe his long flowing robe becomes saturated with this ointment. The Bible says the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And maybe this fragrance finds its way out of the house. And maybe a nearby neighbor catches the aroma. And when he dies, he would think one of two things. He would either think someone died, or most likely he would think there is a celebration, there is an expression of joy taking place, something special and unforgettable is taking place in Simon's house. And he would be very right. 
Mary's affection was impulsive and spontaneous, but yet it was determined and decisive. Her expression of love was deep, rich, and unrestrained. It was genuine and pure. While the controversy simmers for a bit, something scandalous happens. Mary loosens her long, dark hair, and that would never happen in public like this. And she uses her hair to wipe his feet. A woman's hair, especially in this Middle Eastern culture, was viewed as a mark of honor and dignity. But Mary uses her hair as a towel, as a cloth, as a rag to wipe his feet. Within Mary's expression of love, we see at least three elements that comprise genuine Christian love. First, Mary's expression of love was bold. It was big and bold and unforgettable. Someone might ask, wasn't Mary embarrassed to do this? I mean, there's a time and a place for everything, right? Why did she feel so compelled to assert herself in that situation? And by doing that, she became a spectacle. What she did clashed with the decorum of the moment. Why wasn't she more self-conscious? Why wasn't she a little more considerate of the room? Why didn't she weigh the potential backlash before she did this? Christ answers some of these questions in verses 7 and 8, but this we know. Mary was not embarrassed or ashamed because she was overwhelmed by the joy of surrendering the very essence of her being at his feet. Every facet of who she is, every aspiration, every dream, every goal, every hope, every need, she laid all of it at his feet for his glory. And the beauty of this moment far outweighed the pressure of trying to conform to other people's expectations. And I'd like to build on that point for just a moment. Within our society, there are three basic things that people instinctively pursue after, maybe without even knowing. It's acceptance, affirmation, and approval. The world revolves around that dynamic. Now think about how these three elements tug and pull within your life from what you wear to how you look, what you have, who you're with. All of those categories can cater to our natural need for social acceptance. But the insidious reality is that those three social pressures can become the breeding ground for compromise. If you base your rules for living on what society dictates, on what other people say or think about you, then you start to walk the line between heaven and the world. And that line becomes a road that takes you to a very destructive place. And maybe it happens like this. As a born-again believer, you are walking the narrow road of life. Sooner or later, you find yourself moving through the muck 
of hardship, right? That's just part of life. That happens. And as you're struggling with trouble, have you ever noticed that there's always an exit sign that appears off to the side just sitting there for you? And it simply reads, rest and relaxation this way. It's always there, isn't it? It appears seemingly out of nowhere. And you think about it. And you think, could I? Should I? Maybe for just a moment. Because this life is tough. And so you convince yourself. You make a resolution to take a break from the struggle of the road. And you're on that exit ramp. You're not exactly sure where it leads, but you're after rest and relaxation. And as you press on, you see a city up ahead. And you also see a welcome sign off to the side. And you read it, and it appeals to you. It speaks to you. And it reads, Welcome to the city of promise, the place where all your dreams come true. And at the bottom it reads, Population, we've stopped counting. A lot of people in this place. You look at the sign. It looks like it was recently renovated and repainted. It looks almost new. But there's something mysterious about this sign. Something about it bothers you. But you press on. And as soon as you cross into the city limits, you hear the sound of falling sand. That's strange. You look around, you don't see anything. You go on. You finally arrive. And you notice that it's especially hot in the city of promise. I mean, that heat literally just hangs in the air. And so quickly, you run inside to the lobby to check in. Of course, you're welcomed. You are the focus of attention. And every whim you have is catered to. You can get used to this. You love it. As you look around, you notice there are no clocks on the wall, no calendars anywhere. You figure it's for the best. I'm trying to relax. Forget schedules. Obviously, you're exhausted and very hungry from your trip. And the person behind the counter says, you're going to love this. We have a three Michelin star restaurant right down the road, right within the city. How about that? That's convenient. And that's the whole thing about this place. Everything is convenient. And so you make your way to the restaurant. And of course, there's no line. You get seated immediately. The waiter comes and he says, we serve what you crave. If you want it, we got it. And he gives you a menu. You open it up and it's right there, full color. It's that gourmet burger you've always thought about. Read the reviews. Everyone says it's fantastic. It begins with Kobe beef, of course, the best that money can buy. There's some black truffles on it, just the right amount. There's even a layer of lobster sprinkled with a little bit of caviar. 
And to top it all off, a hickory smoked duck egg. This is beautiful. You say, I want this. He doesn't even blink. He says, you got it. And as he goes away, he leaves you a glass of water. You're looking at this glass filled with ice. This is going to hit the spot because it's hot. And so you pick it up and you just take it in. Very strange. There's a lot of ice in there, but it's not even cold. And so really, it's not refreshing. It doesn't quench your thirst at all. And you think that's strange. You're not here for water. You're here for the gourmet burger, and it, it, it arrives very fast. And so you dig in with both hands, and as you get into the burger, you notice, strange, not a lot of flavor. It's bland. There's no zest. There's no spice. And it kind of sits like a heavy brick in your stomach. You push your plate away. You know what? We're here to rest and relax. And you remember seeing a swimming pool when you walked in. And you remember how that sun just glistened off the water. And so it's time to go for a dip. You get ready. You jump in. You go down and you come right back up. It's strange because your eyes start to burn. And they start to itch. And after a couple seconds, your skin becomes inflamed and irritated by the water. And so you quickly get out of the pool and you say, you know what? I'm just going to take in this atmosphere. Just take in this place. But your body becomes scorched by the heat. And so you finally say, it's time to turn in. Tomorrow's a new day. And so you walk into your room and you pass by a mirror and you look at yourself. It's like you walked through a war zone. Your eyes are swollen and bloodshot from the water. Your skin is blistered and cut up. But you look off to the side. There's this bed This is exactly what you need. And so you dive right in. But you feel itchy and scratchy. And as you're trying to sleep, maybe in the middle of the night, you hear a very soft knock. And it's very persistent. And you think maybe it's someone, they have the wrong room. And so you just let it ride out. It gets a little louder. And you finally say, go away. It stops. Comes back. Miserable night. You think, well, you got to settle in for a little, just the first day. Tomorrow's going to be a whole lot better. And so you go through the routine over and over, day after day, and that knock bothers you more than anything else. Your misery intensifies. And then finally one night, as you're laying in bed, getting no sleep, almost morning, you keep thinking about that sign. Something about it bothers you. You look out your window, there's a sparkle of light as the sun rises in that eastern sky, and you think, I gotta go back to that sign. Something about the sign, and so you actually run out and you leave your door open, you run to the sign, and you look at it. And as the sun rises, and the light hits the sign just right. You see something you've never seen before. The word promise 
There's a couple letters that came right before it that were removed. You never saw that before. And as you look at it, you can even make out what those letters used to be. C, O, M. Hmm. You back away and the motto of the city, it starts to change with other letters that you see that were removed and you finally take it in. The sign reads, Welcome to the city of compromise. Your convictions are not welcome here. You look at it, repulsed, and you point at it and you say, this is the place of broken promises. This is where opportunities come to die. I can't believe that I spent an entire week here at this farce of a place. And just then, you hear the sound of falling sand louder than ever. And really, it's always been there, but you suppressed it. And you finally realize that this is the sound of the sands of time slipping away. You see, you haven't been here for a week. You've been here for over a year, easy. You fall to your knees. You're brokenhearted, but you're angry. And so you leap toward that sign and you shake it and you try to tear it down and all that new paint, it all just kind of sprinkles away. And you see behind that paint the fingerprints and the hand marks of all those desperate people who stood exactly where you stand as you feel the agony of deceit. What do you do now? You leave, right? You run, and you get back on the right road. Not so fast. Because there's one final insult that comes to you courtesy of the city of compromise. The more that you think about getting back on the right road, the narrow road, your stomach becomes all knotted up. And you finally get it. This awful place has now become your comfort zone. And you can't leave. And you look back at your room with the door still partially open. You bow your head and you make your way back, destined to repeat the same miserable routine over and over again. And as you're walking back, you ask yourself, how did this happen? I never meant to stay in a place like this. But the sign told you how. When you surrender your Christ-centered convictions in order to win the approval and the applause of anyone, you become a resident of the city compromise. What a place to be. But Mary is the example tonight. And when the going gets tough in life, instead of looking for the easy way, instead of looking for that exit sign, you need to run to the feet of Jesus Christ. You'll find refuge there. And as you surrender who you are at his feet, only then can you truly embody who you are meant to be. When you are at his feet, you will see your personal value. And you'll be surprised by the endless potential that lies within you by him and it's just waiting to be tapped. 
You'll be thrilled as you learn about his everlasting purpose for your life. And you'll be overwhelmed by the peace that passes all understanding. And you'll experience a satisfaction that nothing can match when you are at his feet. And you'll also realize that those three social pressures that seem destined to destroy you, they're powerless when you are at his feet. Mary's act of worship and love is profound because she affirms a basic principle for living found in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, and it's this. I'd rather have the approval of God than the approval of men. And that's what it means to live in love in a bold way. It means to live without compromise. It means that you pursue and crave God's approval and not from the people around you. It means that you have an enthusiastic, passionate desire to be conformed to God's standard and not the world's. And the natural byproduct of applying this principle to how you live is that Christ's bold love unleashes from your heart and from your life and it touches everyone around you. And I can't think of anything more meaningful than that. I can't think of anything more liberating. You will never know the exuberance of true freedom until you are invested in his glory through love and through obedience. Mary's expression of love was bold, but secondly, her expression was also humble. It was the cultural, cultural etiquette of this time for the lowliest servant to wash the feet of the arriving guests. And for Mary, it was the honor of a lifetime and she seized it. Humble love is a very powerful thing. It's a proactive kind of love because it doesn't wait for needs to pile up and for committees to form. The distinguishing mark of humble love is that it is invested in the spiritual prosperity of other people. And so when someone hurts, when they have pain, humble love always goes the distance, even if it means crossing the city limits into the city of compromise. And humble love knocks softly sometimes. Sometimes it's louder. And even when you say, go away, it never gives up. I watched Humble Love in action not too long ago. If you can imagine a foyer filled with a hundred people and there were groups of people, people who knew each other and they were just enjoying the reunions and the connections that they had with each other. And I looked out, I saw a young man in a corner almost afraid to come out because he didn't know anybody almost nobody. And if you would have seen the look on his face, he looked broken. His spirit looked broken. And then I watched as another young man who was part of a group 
enjoying conversation, he left his group and he went to this lonely young man. And I watched from a distance as this broken young man, his face reanimated, filled with life and joy and gladness. It was the most powerful thing you could see. And that is the impact of humble love. You never forget people who do things that seem so insignificant. Maybe it's how someone approached you when they first saw you here at camp and they said, how you been doing? It's been a while since we talked. You don't forget that. Maybe it's how they put their hand on your shoulder when you needed some support. You'll never forget that. Maybe it's that compliment they gave you. I really appreciate who you are. I appreciate your friendship. They never forget that. If you want to be remembered, love in a humble way. Mary's expression of love was bold. It was humble. And lastly, it was powerful. Mary wasn't just a spectacle. She became an example because everyone in this house was affected in some way by her expression of love. And what that means for us, it's never for nothing. As born-again believers, we are in the business of bringing people face-to-face with God's love. It's who we are. It's what we do by divine commission. We are an extension of God's love. We are accountable for that. We are responsible for that. We're not necessarily held liable for the end result, right? That's a different issue. But the high calling of your life is to let God love through you. That's it. With no human filter, with no human agenda, with no human obstacles getting in the way, your job is to get out of the way. You ever think about that before? As a born-again believer, your job is to be minimized so that Christ can be magnified in your life. That's what you do. I wish that Mary's example was better received. I wish that it had a greater impact on some because the Bible says in verse number four, then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Maybe it started with an elbow jab under the table. Maybe it started with murmuring and whispering. What is she doing? What a shame. What a disgrace. And that sentiment made it from one disciple to the next, to the next. Somehow Judas, with his corrosive and envious heart, started to infect the attitude of the other disciples. And we know that because in Matthew chapter 26, verse number eight, the Bible says that some of his disciples had indignation on Mary because of what Judas peddled to them. This is a very strong word. And what it would mean is that their emotions became inflamed and then their anger bubbled over. They couldn't hold it back. It just lashed out. What are you doing? 
Mary? And Judas, to justify himself, he lays out a rock-solid case why Mary was wrong and wasteful and inconsiderate of the most vulnerable in their society. And this is how it sounds in verse number five. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? How do you argue against the poor? Is there an effective way to do that? For Judas, this is the performance of a lifetime. Maybe his eyes welled up with tears. Maybe there was an inflection in his voice. Maybe his chin quivered just a bit. And he cried out, What about the poor? 300 pence. That was the issue, I guess, for Judas. It's difficult to translate that to an actual dollar amount because there are a lot of different variables. But we can say that this amount was equivalent to a year's wage for some. Mary, you wasted thousands and thousands of dollars on some feeble, ignorant expression that no one even understands because it's personal to you. How selfish can you be? The nobility of his cause is stripped away. And the coldness of his heart is exposed in verse number six. The Bible says, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. The phrase here that personifies the life of Judas is he didn't care. He didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about Mary. He didn't care about Christ. He didn't care about filling the needs of other people. He just didn't care. Why? Because he was ruled by self-interest. And self-interest is a brutal dictator that defies the authority of God. Judas was the money man. He was the accountant of this group, and his appetite for greed is insatiable. You can feel it in every word. You know what's tremendous here? What it, what's hard for me to look over? He fooled everybody. All of them, except for Christ, of course. The mask that he wore was so convincing that none of them thought twice that maybe Judas had ulterior motives. No one did. He fooled them all. You know who this man was? Christ identified him as a devil. He made a deal with the devil and he still fooled everybody. Now this level of deception is next level stuff. Maybe within the spaces of your life there is a room with a dark door. This is a secret place for you and even the closest people in your life don't even know it's there because it's buried under layer after layer of deception. Can you see the door? It's rusty. It's a steel door. And you know that it guards a secret that no one can know. Tonight, we take a look inside. As you try and open this steel door, it creaks and squeaks and it fights you every step of the way but you finally get it open 
and it's a very dark and dingy room. And so you turn on the light. The light blinks a couple times as if it doesn't want to turn on. Finally, you see. From the floor to the ceiling, all you see are shelves. And neatly arranged on these shelves are masks and facades. They're arranged just right. They're even labeled with great care. If you look over to the left, you'll see the convicted and the concerned facade. A very popular one stares right at you. It's the self-righteous facade. Off to the right, you'll see the devoted and the faithful facade. You get the point. And every single morning, you come to this place alone and you peruse the shelves and you ask yourself, what kind of image do I want to project today? And you pick one and you put it on. And you look at yourself in that mirror hanging on the wall. It's got a crack right through it. And that mirror on the wall tells you, you look perfect. You look so good, no one will ever know. You look great. And that mirror never tells you how dangerous it is to play with facades. It's dangerous because you become satisfied with just getting by in life. And you almost expect failure to come, and so it never gets any better for you. It's dangerous because you become content with mediocrity. And that, me- and that means that you never aim for the gold standard of Christ's life. Never. And because of that, life becomes like an empty exercise. And it's dangerous because if you become satisfied and content with hypocrisy, then your prayer life is seldom ever honest. And that cripples your entire life. It should matter to us that God sees us as we are. And now for the best part. The words of our Lord shock and surprise everyone. And it begins like this in verse number seven. Then said Jesus, let her alone. And I really can't get past these words. The same voice that stopped the wind and the waves and the storm, that same voice cuts right through this self-righteous indignation. Stop troubling her. Stop. He defends her. In every account, Christ begins by defending her. The justifier of men's hearts becomes her personal advocate. He becomes her refuge because she needed it. And that's exactly what it means to be an extension of God's love. It is to be a refuge for someone. And we see that here. Let her alone. There is a corrective tone here as I see it. And what it implies here is that these disciples, they should have known better. They should have watched Christ when this happened with Mary, and based on his response, they would have known what is right and what is wrong, what is wise and what is foolish. But instead of keeping their eye on the master, they allowed themselves to become influenced by the deceiver, and that happens every time. When you take your eye off of Christ, you become the most 
vulnerable person in the world, vulnerable to the agony of deceit, and nothing hurts more than deception. So why did Mary do this? In verses 7 and 8, Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Mary had a specific window of opportunity to express her love. And she seized it. And tonight, you have an opportunity of a lifetime to express what Christ means to you. Now is the time to prove your love for him. Not just talk about it, not just study about it, not just think about it, but to prove it. Now is the time to show how deep your affection for him really is. Judas, you really want to be a champion of economic issues? You can do that. And if you have other priorities in life, there's a time and a place for them as well. But to express love for Christ is first and foremost because everything else cascades from that. Now, how much did this mean to Christ? This is incredible. How much did it mean to him? In Matthew chapter 26, verse 13, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath wrought, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. What she did, this expression of love, is now attached to the good news of the gospel. And the meaning here is that what she did will be discussed, it will be proclaimed because of what she did. That's how much it meant to the Lord. And so the simple question for you tonight, what is your life expressing love for? I'd like to leave you with five chilling words that I hope you never forget. And they're found in verse number eight of our text. Jesus said, Me, ye have not always. You know what that means? Your window of opportunity is closing. Quickly. It is hard to believe that there will be some here tonight who will choose to spend another night in the city of compromise than to run to his feet. And some of you may leave this auditorium later on to express your love for something else out there when Christ died so that he could win your love. And so the question for us tonight, will you come to the feet of Christ because he's waiting for you? Amen. Holy Father, we don't deserve you. We can be pretty awful. We say we love you, but we don't obey you. We sing songs of, of love and adoration. But man, Father, our lives sure don't reflect it. And so, Father, we come to you tonight humbly, just recognizing that we need you. There's a lot of people here that that don't know you. And so, Lord, we pray that that you would grant them courage. Courage to, to run to the feet of Jesus. To let go of their affections. To run from that city of compromise. And just to seek your face. Father, we pray for them. We lift them up to you. They don't even know what they could have. And we just pray, Lord, that you would grant them the courage to seek you, 
to not just sit and wait, but to run to you. And Lord, we, we need some courage too for those of us that, that call you Lord. Father, we need the courage to be invisible. That you would be visible. And so, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in us. And that, that we would not just accept the indwelling and the empowerment as words, but that we would surrender ourselves to the moving and to the leading of your Holy Spirit. That we wouldn't be embarrassed of the gospel, but that we would go, as that banner behind me says. And Father, that we would let go of our affections for this world. We would, that we would let go of the temporal for the eternal. So please, Lord, give us all courage. Courage to be honest with ourselves. Courage to be real. And to stop faking it. To confess our sins. To seek your face. To be ambassadors. To be the potential that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.